And home, this is seeming more like it all the time. When we retired 11 years ago from Westminster Chapel, it was like I, Abraham sacrificing Isaac because I said goodbye to London. And now Colin has given me Isaac back, or <laughs> I've got London back. And it's just wonderful. And uh, Colin and Amanda and Louise and me, more like family all the time, pray for each other. I prayed for Colin and Amanda and the family every day for 15 years before we even left here. And I've done it for the last 11 years. And, uh, but I never dreamed that this relationship would result in getting to come because I, I just love coming here. Were you at the wedding yesterday? Anybody at the wedding yesterday? It was a wonderful, wonderful time and uh, beautiful. I think uh, the most exciting, noisy, fun wedding I've ever, ever attended and had a part in. I am going to speak on something eschatological. That means the word eschatology comes from the Greek word eschatos, means last things, last days. Uh, when I was a, a young preacher, just starting, I was, I thought about prophecy and the second coming and all that's going to happen. I was consumed with that. And I never will forget, uh, my first church was in Palmer, Tennessee, Church of the Nazarene. I was 20 years old. And my dad came to hear me. I think, I don't think he'd ever heard me preach before. And I was wanting to do a good job and impress him. And I had this great sermon on the second coming and all that will happen just before and just after. And, and uh, after the sermon was over, I was anxious to get his opinion. And he just kind of went quiet. And uh, finally he said, son, let me shares something with you that the man you were named after used to say. Uh, my father named me after his favorite preacher, Dr. R.T. Williams. Uh, and I've known nothing but R.T. all my life. My name is Robert Tillman, but I go by R.T. Uh, and uh, so that's what you call me. Uh, Dr. R.T. Williams, he said, gave this advice to young preachers. Young men, stay away from the subject of prophecy. Let the old men do that. <laughs> because they won't be around to see their mistakes. <laughs> that said, I am old. I'll be 78 in July. No, if you're going to clap, wait till you hear this. In June, Louise and I will have been married 55 years. All right, open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 25. We're going to talk about the parable of the ten virgins. And uh, I've got a book on the parables, and I think every parable is in that book, and, and the parable of the ten virgins in more detail than I will be able to go into today. But there are some things on my heart, and uh, 
uh, when I shared those things with Colin, I, I didn't do it, hoping he'd ask me to preach on it. In fact, I, when he did say, oh, would you preach on that, I was kind of sobered uh, because uh, I probably need more time uh, to refine it and because things that I will say uh, you might have heard before, but maybe not. And so I want to get it right. Uh, but here we go. Matthew 25, verse 1. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight the cry rang out. Uh, let me pause there. The word midnight comes from a Greek word that means middle of the night. So don't think in terms of 12 o'clock midnight. That's not the meaning. So in the middle of the night, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him in the wedding banquet. And the door was shut. Later the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. May God be pleased to bless the reading and the preaching of this his most holy and infallible word. Brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus by your Holy Spirit to be upon every mind present, that their perception of what I say will be received as you intend, and upon my tongue that I'll be cleansed that I might be your transparent instrument to say everything you want said, nothing you don't want said. I pray that I will be clear, simple. I pray that this will be life-changing, perhaps pivotal. And above all, that it will be a word that brings great honor and glory to your name. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a parable that describes what is going to happen just before the second coming of Jesus. I think for years, 
I didn't see this at all. I always thought that Jesus would come at midnight because of the translation midnight. I think translators should, should change it, say middle of the night. That's what the Greek word means. And because it says midnight, uh, the impression was given that at 12 o'clock midnight, at the end of an era, uh, that's when the Lord will come. And as a little boy, I remember one preacher holding up a big sign, a picture of a clock, and it was five minutes to 12, meaning we're right close to the time when Jesus would come. And then I began to realize, but just a minute, the cry came, the church was awakened, there was a little bit of time. Now, I am not prepared to say whether we're talking about hours, days, months, or a year or two, I, I don't know. But clearly, the midnight cry, the second coming, are not simultaneous. There's a time gap between the two. Here's my point. There will be an awakening of the church prior to the second coming of Jesus. And it will be the greatest outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the history of the church. But here's what Jesus said. At that time, those are the opening words, the King James authorized version says, then. Now why the phrase, at that time, or then? What's he talking about? Well, in the original Greek, you perhaps know, they didn't have chapters, verses, where you could find your place. It just kept going. And so if there had been no break, and what Jesus has been talking about in the 24th chapter of Matthew are the very last days. And he says, then, at that time, very last days, here's what the church will be like. Now, the phrase last days is used two ways. One, we have been in the last days for 2,000 years because Hebrews says in these last days, God has revealed these things by his Son. That started when Jesus ascended to heaven at the right hand of God. So the phrase last days has been going on a long time. But the very last days would be the last generation of the church. How long a generation is is debatable, but we're talking about what I believe the time we're now in. It is my conviction that we are in the very last days. And Jesus said in the last days the church would be asleep. And so if we are in the last days, Jesus said well, the church would be asleep. That means we're all asleep. I like to think I'm not asleep. I like to think I'm awake. But when I read what I'm going to be preaching about, I am sobered to think I may think I'm awake. Maybe I think I'm walking in the light and I'm close to God. Maybe I'm not as close to God as I think I am. Because when this awakening comes, it will be an objective test. And you will discover then whether you are like the wise virgins or the foolish virgins. All right? These virgins represent the church. What does it mean by wise and foolish? Well, the wise are those who took oil in their vessels. And the way I would interpret that, it means those Christians who are pursuing their inheritance. Every Christian 
is called to enter into his or her inheritance. For the last couple of days at the Bible school, I spoke on that subject. So that when you're converted, God doesn't just say, glad to meet you, see you in heaven. You're called to enter into an inheritance. Some do, some don't. Those who do are called wise in this parable. Those who don't are called foolish. But the wise and the foolish had in common, they were all asleep. Even the wise were asleep. And then a cry came in the middle of the night. Well, now, how would you define wise, you may ask? Well, I would begin with this. Go to the book of Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so I ask you, do you have a genuine, healthy fear of God? That's the beginning of wisdom. And when you think of the word lamp, they, took, they all had lamps. That is a symbol of the word. Uh, the psalmist said, your word is a lamp uh, unto my feet, a light unto my path. What is the oil? Well, you had to have oil uh, to have light in those days. They didn't have electricity like we've got here. They had oil that burnt and gave light. And the oil would refer to the Holy Spirit. So the wise, they fear God, they have the Word and the Spirit. How do you define foolish? Well, the foolish didn't think about tomorrow's consequences of today's decisions. They took no oil in their lamps. Now they knew about the traditional Middle Eastern wedding, that the festivities could go on for days, and then the groom would show up. Well, they were hoping that there would be no delay, that the bridegroom would come immediately. And so the difference between a Middle Eastern wedding and the weddings of today uh, 2,000 years ago, uh, the bride would wait for the groom. Uh, if you were here yesterday, it was a reverse situation. The groom was down front waiting for the bride. And she was just a few minutes late. I don't think uh, uh, Gabriel was too worried about it. I do remember one wedding we had at Westminster Chapel where 45 minutes later, the bride hadn't turned up and he was beginning to wonder if she was going to come at all. Well, it wasn't quite like that yesterday. But the point is, in our day, the groom waits for the bride. In those days, the bride waited for the groom. And I'll come back to that in just a moment. What about the foolish? Well, they just didn't think about how it would be tomorrow. They lived for the moment. Uh, and according to Proverbs chapter 1, verse 22, foolish people hate knowledge. Here's what Proverbs says. How long will you simple ones love your simple ways? How long will mockers delight in mockery and fools hate knowledge? If you had responded to my rebuke, I would have poured out my heart to you and made my thoughts known to you. 
But since you rejected me when I called, and no one gave heed when I stretched out my hand, since you ignored all my advice and would not accept my rebuke, I will laugh at your disaster. I will mock when calamity overtakes you. That sounds harsh, but this is what it says. And then we find out that the foolish people had this in common. According to Proverbs 1, verse 29, they hated knowledge. They did not choose the fear of the Lord. Well, now, what is the midnight cry? It is an effectual awakening in the middle of the night when both wise and foolish were in a deep sleep. Uh, but they would be awakened, and it would be a cry that would be heard around the world. Take 9-11, some 10, 11 years ago, when the planes crashed into the Twin Towers in New York City. Chances are you know right where you were when you first heard it. And it was a word that everybody, that they'd hear it around the world, they would remember where they were. That is how effective this midnight cry will be. It is the preaching of the gospel in unprecedented power. It is when the Word and the Spirit come together. Now, I take the view, this may be new to you, maybe you've heard this from someone else, maybe you've heard it from me. I take the view that there has been a silent divorce in the church, speaking generally, between the Word and the Spirit. Now, when there's a divorce, sometimes the children stay with the mother, sometimes the children stay with the father. In this divorce, you have those that are on the word side and those that are on the spirit side. What's the difference? We'll take those on the word side. What's the emphasis? We need to get back to Bible preaching, expository preaching. Earnestly contend for the faith once delivered unto the saints. Rediscover justification by faith taught by Luther, Calvin, Sovereignty of God, Jonathan Edwards. And until we have that kind of teaching, the honor of God's name will not be restored. What's wrong with that emphasis? Nothing. It's exactly right. Take those on the spirit side. What is the emphasis? We need to get back to the book of Acts. Signs wonders, miracles, gifts of the Holy Spirit in operation. When they have a prayer meeting, the place is shaken. Get into Peter's shadow, you're healed. Lie to the Holy Spirit, you're struck dead. And until that kind of power is restored to the church, the honor of God's name will not be restored. What's wrong with that emphasis? Nothing. It's exactly right. But the problem is, nearly everywhere, it's one or the other. I preach around the world. And I can tell in, in moments, when I walk into a church, it's a word church, it's a spirit church. And neither seems to learn from the other. From the other. Can't tell word, word people they don't believe in the Holy Spirit. They say, of course we believe in the Holy Spirit. Third person of the Trinity. You can't tell spirit churches they don't preach the Bible. They say, what do you think we preach? It's the Bible. Now, they don't, they don't get it. There are those who do. And I think Colin Dye 
is one of those who stands out, who wants to see the Word and the Spirit come together. But what will happen in this cry in the middle of the night will be so effective that the whole church will suddenly be awakened. Now let me explain more about the Middle Eastern weddings of 2,000 years ago. Jesus' hearers would have understood this. He was speaking in their language, and we need to go back and research to find out what it was like. As far as we know, it was this. The wedding took place in the house of the groom, not in a church or a cathedral or a synagogue or registry office. And sometimes the wedding would last for days. Sometimes they would take the form of a seven-day celebration. At a specific time, the groom would come to get his bride from her house and take her to his house. The bride would never know exactly when the bridegroom would arrive at her house. The tradition in those days was that there would be young unmarried ladies who were friends of the bride and would accompany the bridal couple from the house of the bride to the house of the groom. Because the exact time of the groom's arrival was uncertain, the bride was expected to be ready at any moment. Often, strange as this may seem to us, the groom would come in the middle of the night for his bride. And all were supposed to be ready. Now Jesus' hearers would have understood the context and that he was talking about the way weddings were then, but he was also talking about the very last days. And Jesus said in the very last days the church would be asleep. Those unmarried ladies, virgins, who were prudent would bring along a flask with additional oil supply so their lamp would be burning in the middle of the night. This way the lamps would always be burning and lit. Now, a rule of all parables, you can't make a table stand on all four legs evenly. And so you don't want to press every detail, say, this must mean that, and that must mean this. Jesus' main point, be ready to enjoy the awakening when it comes prior to the second coming because it was to be a happy event. A wedding is to be a happy event. And so imagine this. Wouldn't you like to be right in the middle of the greatest move of the Holy Spirit since Pentecost? Wouldn't you like to be in the middle of it? And when it comes, you think, this is wonderful. We prayed for this. Where the Word of God flourishes and all of London is talking about God. How many heard God conversations in the tube as you came? Or on a train? Or on a bus? Chances are it was godless, or it was not even connected to anything spiritual. Turn on the television. Wherever you go, it's godless. In the days of the Great Awakening in the 18th century, Jonathan Edwards wrote in his diary, he said, the whole town was full of talk about God. That was what it was like when the Spirit came into a community. Well, that is just a little bit of what it will be like just before the second coming. Great awakening. But this awakening will apply to the church. The wise 
get to enjoy it. The foolish will be exposed, and it will come out that they did not have a fear of God on them. They weren't thinking of the consequences of their decision. They were not walking in the light. And now they're found out, and they go to the wise of help, help, give us your oil. And the wise say, we just have enough for ourselves. And in the meantime, it all ended. It was too late for the foolish. I will tell you this, outside the church, the effect of this awakening will be a conversion of millions who have not been a part of the church. As far as the church, they've had their day. The wise will enjoy this great movement of the Holy Spirit. The foolish will not get to enjoy it, but you can see Muslims being converted by the millions. Judaism in Israel, in Tel Aviv, in Golders Green, in Brooklyn, the blindness lifted off of Israel, and massive numbers of conversions. This is going to happen. And then comes the second coming. Well, now, the call, said Jesus, will be in the middle of the night, speaking figuratively, when you least expect it. Now, as I said, I'm 77 years old, and you may think that I've lost my mind if I tell you that I honestly believe that I will be alive to see the beginnings of this. And I'm preaching something today out of great conviction. What I am saying is not the call in the middle of the night, but it's a call to be ready for the call. And to find out whether you are wise or foolish. Because once the call comes, it's too late for the foolish to become wise. And so, the purpose of this message, in part, is that this might be a wake-up call by the Holy Spirit so that you can enjoy this and be ready for it. Now, let me point out some obvious things about sleep. Because Jesus said the entire church would be asleep in the very last days, wise and foolish. First, you don't know you were asleep until you wake up. You know what it's like? I'm going to lie down on this couch. I'm just going to close my eyes, but I'm not going to go to sleep. And suddenly, you look, you were asleep for 20 minutes. You don't know you were asleep until you wake up. And so when I preach this, don't hear me being on a pedestal looking down at you. I honestly question whether I am as awake as I think I am. All I know is that I want to pursue my inheritance and walk in every bit of light I can get. I was talking to a man yesterday, a prominent businessman, and I said, I look for any way I can increase my anointing. If I find a way to increase my anointing, one way is that on my prayer list, I have an enemies list. I don't think you got that. <laughs> Do you have an enemy or two? I've got a few. And you know what I started doing? Praying for them every day. 
that God would bless them, that they don't get found out, that they don't in any way get punished, that God would bless them. You say, well, what if God answers your prayer? I'm asking him to do it. You say, well, that won't be fun. They'll never get caught. Oh, let me tell you, I've got more anointing than I've ever had in my life. And I want all I can get. And when you pursue your inheritance, and, and all, if all you're doing is living for the day that person gets caught, found out, exposed, you're in a small little world, and you will end up in bitterness. Don't be like that. You don't know you were asleep until you wake up. Another thing about sleep, you do things in your sleep, in your dreams, that you would not do if you were wide awake. You know what it is to have a dream and you think, oh, can't believe I did that. That's not me. But in your dream, you did it. And so when you are asleep, you do things you wouldn't otherwise do. I wonder, could it be that we today think we're awake, are not doing what we would do if we were awake. We are doing things we wouldn't do. And it's disgraceful sometimes. We're living in a time when there's no sense of the fear of God. Where have you been where there's a sense of the fear of God? Who do you know that's afraid of God? You say, well, I don't think we're supposed to be afraid of God. I'll tell you what, when John the Baptist said, flee from the wrath to come, they were scared to death. Nobody's afraid of God. They can thumb their nose at Him. They can laugh at Him and don't feel a thing. The mockery. But there's no outrage from the church and the lack of conviction of sin. Some years ago, four or five years ago, there was a, a stir in Lakeland, Florida. I began to get emails from England saying, isn't it wonderful that the last day revivals is broken out in Lakeland, Florida? In other words, it was being announced that the thing I'm preaching about now did happen in Lakeland four years ago. That's what they were saying. And uh, God TV carried it live, went into Iraq, it went into China, and it was the first exposure that many people in the world would have to Christianity. And so I began watching it every night, night after night after night after night. How many times do you suppose the evangelist preached the gospel? Not once. Not even once. It was all word of knowledge, calling people out giving them their disease, praying for them. they go down on the floor, pray for another. they go down on the floor. Everybody was clapping their hands. Oh, isn't this wonderful? The great revival has come. No mention of the gospel. Am I to believe that in last day's ministries, we're not going to have a restoration of the gospel? I was asked to write an article along with nine other people. What did I think of the Lakeland Revival? I was the only one that said, it's not of God. They printed my article. The other nine, they affirmed it. I felt like I had the Elijah complex. I alone am left. 
And people criticize me. How dare you say it's not of God? I said, it's not of God. Well, say some of it's not of God. I said, it's not of God. I stuck to my guns. Some months later, it turned out that the evangelist was sleeping with his secretary the whole time in a trailer right behind the auditorium where it took place. And when that came out, they all said, oh, RT, you were right. I said, why did you need that to convince you? Didn't you hear him? No conviction of sin. No repentance. This is the thing. People asleep are carried away by things that you wouldn't be carried away with if you were awake. You would know this could not be of God. Well, when you are asleep, no conviction of sin, no sense of outrage over the godlessness of society, or the church's lack of influence in the world, does it grieve you that the church has no influence? Where have you found any place where the world is afraid of the church? They laugh at us. We have an, an indifference, a detachment regarding the cries of hurting people. Also the lost around you. Who cares about those going to hell? No concern about personal lack of time alone with God. Your quiet time, Bible reading. Oh, we're busy. We've got so much to do. There'll be no praying in heaven. We're all so busy. We're asleep. And our indifference to being bitter and angry and unforgiving, holding a grudge, doesn't bother us. And we hate the sound of an alarm. This wake-up call, we don't want to hear it. The nearest to this was 9-11, when in America, everybody was awake. It lasted a few weeks, and then they rolled over and went back to sleep. The next time will be the real thing. No chance, no chance for the church to get it right. Because this call will be clear and unmistakable. It will reveal who is wise and who is foolish. And the thing is, it will be too late for the foolish to become wise, to get oil. Now is a time of repentance. As I speak, this is it. You've got time. But if this were the wake-up call, all it would do is wake everybody up and you'd be going, Oh, I don't have enough oil. Please help. Too late then, I'm saying now is the time. And if God would use this word to say, Lord, I'm sorry for the way I've been living. I'm sorry there's no outrage in my mind. I'm sorry I let all these things go on. It doesn't bother me. May this be the moment so that when the wake-up call comes, and it could come two hours from now or two days, now is the time to accept this word. So who gives the midnight cry? Well, it will be those with the Word and the Spirit. And those open to the immediate and direct witness of the Holy Spirit. And the effect of the midnight cry will be as it was on the day of Pentecost. This man, Simon Peter, is preaching now with a power that no one had ever witnessed. Thousands of Jews came gathering around Peter. The day before, they would have left Peter to scorn. They would have thumbed their nose at Peter. They would have no respect for him. 
But all of a sudden, they're coming up and saying, what shall we do? What shall we do? They were smitten by the Word and by the Spirit coming together. And what will happen is, when this wake-up call comes, the people will say, there really is a God. The Bible really is true. This Jesus who died on a cross is coming again. Those who will get the benefit will be the Jews, the Muslims, outside the church. This, for all I know, could be a wake-up call for those who hear this so that when it comes, you will be among those who get to enjoy it. You may ask, R.T., how do I know that I have oil in my lamp? One is that you persist in faith. It means you don't give up. You persist in faith. Now, there are two kinds of faith. There's saving faith, persistent faith. What's the difference? Saving faith, this is how you become a Christian. So if you're not saved, the way you become a Christian is that you abandon any hope in your good works. Up to now, you've been trusting your good works. But you recognize that they won't save you. Jesus' death on the cross, that's how you're saved. And once you transfer the trust that you had in your good works to what Jesus did for you, God puts righteousness to your credit. And that's the proof that you will go to heaven and not to hell. When Jesus comes or when you die. Persistent faith, what is that? That's following through after you've been saved. Colossians 2, 6. As we have received Jesus Christ the Lord, so walk in Him. In Hebrews chapter 11, you have a description of one person after another who did what they did by faith. Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Samuel, all of these. That's persistent faith. These, this is not saving faith. Those in Hebrews 11, it's not telling you how to be saved. It's how you live by faith after you've been saved. And that's pursuing your inheritance. That is knowing that you've got oil in your vessels. You walk in total forgiveness. You're unashamed of the gospel. You're faithful in church, even in support of the gospel. All these things. Not complaining, not grumbling all the time. You're persisting in faith. Now these things don't necessarily keep us from falling asleep. But God knows those who are persistent in faith. Well, the midnight cry will be a restoration of the gospel with power rarely seen and transcending all movements of the Holy Spirit that go right back to Pentecost. Well, some years ago, I gave a talk at the Wembley Conference Center it was a talk that got me into more trouble than any address, talk, sermon I gave before or since. Colin Dye was there. He was the only one there, I think, that agreed with me. But here was the gist of it. Abraham really believed that Ishmael was the promised 
son. Here's what happened. In Genesis 15, when Abraham was getting older, he, he was uh, already an old man. Sarah was an old woman, and she was apparently barren, could never have children. And Abraham was discouraged. He says, God, you've given me all this wealth. Who am I going to leave it to? Do I give it to my servant, Eliezer? And God said, Abraham, go outside your tent and count the stars. And Abraham tried to count them. He said, there's too many. There must be dozens out there. Oh, we now know there were billions. And God said to Abraham, so will your seed be. Now, Abraham might have said, nonsense. You expect me to believe that? But you know what? He believed it. And God says, good. For that, I call you righteous. And that became the Apostle Paul's Exhibit A for his teaching of justification by faith. That's how you and I are saved. We believe the promise. Even though it seems silly that you would put your trust in the blood of somebody that died on a cross, that seems stupid. But if you believe it, you'll go to heaven. Seems foolish to the natural man. In the case of Abraham, he believed it. But then after a few years, dear Sarah is not pregnant. She says, well, I've got this handmaiden, Hagar. You know, if you slept with her, she's part of the family. And if it turns out to be a male child, then it's from you, be your seed. Well, Abraham slept with Hagar, and Ishmael was born. It fit. It, fit. it met all the conditions. The male child is his seed. And I don't think he was thrilled, but he said, if that's the way it's supposed to be, and he adjusted to it. And for 13 years, Abraham now believed that Ishmael was the promised son. One day, God said, oh, by the way, Abraham, Ishmael is not it. Sarah will conceive. She laughed when she heard it. He laughed. But then he believed it, and Isaac was born. And God said, it's going to come through Isaac, not Ishmael. And immediate reaction of Abraham, oh, please let it be with Ishmael. Nope, it's going to be Isaac. This address I gave at the Wembley Conference Center, a few days before, I was with a, a, a charismatic leader, and I said, let me ask you a question. If I were to tell you that the charismatic movement is Isaac or Ishmael, which would you say it is? He said, Isaac. I said, what if I were to tell you the charismatic movement is Ishmael? He said, oh, I hope not. This would be horrible. I said, charismatic movement is Ishmael. Well, I preached that. When I finished, nobody clapped. You can almost hear a pin drop. <laughs> Remember those days? It was the only man that stood with me. Serious. Some of those people were so angry with me. They, could, they were livid. Now, 15 or 20 years later, some of the same people, you know what they're saying now? RT, we hope you are right. Because if this is it, if this is it, if this is all there's going to be, we're in pretty bad shape. Man, I talked to yesterday, major leader in a 
famous church that's charismatic. He said, if what we've got now is it, we're in bad shape. I'm telling you, Isaac is coming, and he is coming soon, and when this comes, it'll be the Word and Spirit coming together, and it will be a shout that will go around the world. Now, when I gave that talk, a few days later, people began to say, you got that from Smith Wigglesworth, didn't you? Sorry, what do you mean? Well, I'd heard of Smith Wigglesworth. I didn't know that he said the same thing. He just didn't call it Isaac. And I'll read it to you. This is from, from Smith Wigglesworth. If we're to believe that the people who wrote it down, three months before he died, in 1947, quote, During the next few decades, there will be two distinct moves of the Holy Spirit across the church in Great Britain. The first move will affect every church that is open to receive it and will be characterized by a restoration of the baptism and gifts of the Holy Spirit. The second move of the Holy Spirit will result in people leaving historic churches and planting new churches that all began to happen in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. In the duration of each of these moves, the people who are involved will say, this is the great revival. Smith Wigglesworth says, no. Neither is this the great revival, but both are steps towards it. When the new church phase is on the wane, that's where we are right now. This is written in 1947. There will be evidence in the churches something that has not been seen before, a coming together of those with an emphasis on the Word and those with an emphasis on the Spirit. When the Word and Spirit come together, there will be the biggest movement of the Holy Spirit that the nation, and indeed the world, has ever seen. It will mark the beginning of a revival that will eclipse anything that has been witnessed within these shores, even the Wesleyan and the Welsh revivals of former years, the outpouring of God's Spirit will flow over from the UK to the mainland of Europe, and from there will begin a missionary move to the ends of the earth. Every day I wake up, I ask, could it be today? This is the best I can do as a wake-up call to the wise and the foolish to be ready for something that is at hand. And then, when it comes, and the awakening precedes the second coming, and then when the second coming itself takes place, Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, Behold, He comes with clouds, Every eye shall see him, they also which pierced him, and all the kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Wail. You know why they're going to wail? Two reasons. One, they're going to see it. Second, it's too late to believe. You say, well, I'll believe it if I see it. It won't be faith then. You see, what makes faith faith is that you believe the word although you don't have the evidence. You say, well, that's dumb. Well, that's what the atheist says. 
That's what the scientist says. But as Christians, it's the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit that persuades us the Bible is the Word of God. For those who say, I will believe it when I see it, can I just say this to you? You're going to get to see it. That's coming. But it will be too late to believe. It won't be faith. What makes faith, faith? Do you believe this? So here's what's going to happen. They're going to see him. And they'll know this is for real. Every eye shall see him. They also which pierced him. And all the kindreds of the earth, it says, wail, W-A-I-L, wail. When is the last time you heard somebody wail? You might hear them sob. You might hear them cry, sniffles, and <laughs> when they wail. A few months ago, Ruth Calver, Clive Calver's wife, phoned me from Newtown, Connecticut. Newtown, Connecticut. That's where the school, where the guns, a, a handgun went and killed 20 children ages 6, 7 years old. Because Ruth Calva was the pastor of the largest church right there by, she was invited to go into the fire station because next door to the school was a fire station and they had all the parents of the ch children go into that fire station and await word what happened to their child. And so Ruth was there with, with dozens of parents and so they would come in and say, uh, Mr. Jones, your son, uh, Billy, he's fine. Here, you can go home now. Another voice, Mr. Smith, you've been waiting word for Emily. Emily's fine. You can go. And then Ruth said, the calls stopped coming in. After a couple of hours, it began to sink in to those parents that it could only mean that their child was one of those shot. And Ruth said, I will never forget the sound as long as I live. The wailing, the wailing, the pathos, it's over. It's real, and they'll never see their child again. Well, you see, when Jesus comes, you that are sophisticated, you don't want to show your emotions, you want to show that you're stiff upper lip, I'm going to tell you, when that day comes, it won't matter who sees you. You will know this is it. And you will wail because it's over. That's coming. What God is doing is giving you a little advance warning. Are you wise? Are you foolish? And the big question is, if Jesus were to come today or you were to die today, do you know for sure that you would go to heaven, do you? And if you were to stand before God, and you will, and he were to ask you, and he might, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Imagine right now, it's the real thing. And you're standing before God. He says, why should I let you in? And only one answer will do. You give the wrong answer. You have to go someplace else. You don't want to go there. What would you say? Imagine it's real. Ask yourself. Ask yourself, what would I say? Are you saying, 
I've, I, I've tried to be a good person. I believe God would say, come in. Uh, I, I was brought up in a church. Mm. I'm sorry that's not good enough. Being a good person, that's respectable, but that won't save you. Well, I've been baptized. Sorry, that won't save you. Well, I, I've, just, I've, I've tried to do my very, very best. I believe you. I'm sorry. That won't save you. If it did not cross your mind to say, I've got one hope, the blood of Jesus, if you didn't immediately think, I know how I'd get in because I'm trusting Jesus' death on the cross, if that thought didn't come, you, my friend, are in a very precarious position. I wouldn't want to be in your shoes for anything in the world, but you don't need to stay like this. Right now, before we close, you that know in your heart you would give the wrong answer, you wouldn't have trusted Jesus' blood, you can do it right now. I'm going to give you a prayer to pray. You don't need to say it out loud. Don't say it out loud. Say it in your heart. If you needed to pray the prayer, right now, Lord Jesus, I need you. I want you. I'm sorry for my sins. Wash my sins away by your blood. I welcome your Holy Spirit into my heart. As best as I know how, I give you my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Did you pray that prayer? Did you? Did you? Did you? Question, are you ashamed that you prayed that prayer? Why do you ask, R.T.? Because Jesus said, if you are ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father. One, not, I'm going to say a minute from now, no, 30 seconds from now. I'm going to ask you, if you prayed that prayer, and you're not ashamed of it, to stand up. You say, in front of all these people, yes. Well, that's kind of scary. What if you're the only one that stands? You might be. It will show that you don't care who knows. I'm not going to ask you to make a speech. I'm just going to ask you to stand in 10 seconds. To say, I prayed the prayer because God is watching and the angels are watching. Five, four, three, two, one. If you prayed that prayer, stand to your feet. Remain standing. Remain standing. Remain standing. Don't sit down. Don't sit down. Okay, stop clapping. Stop clapping. Remain standing. Remain standing. I'll wait 10 seconds. Anybody else? Don't miss out on this moment. If you stood, stand back up. If you really mean it. And you that are standing, I want you to go to the nearest aisle. Let's see where they're going to go because there's no room right here. Uh, come to the front to show you really meant it. You're in the balcony. Take you an extra 30 seconds. Move where you are. Come down. I want you to come right down to the front. This shows you meant it. You're unashamed. Come quickly. Come quickly.